Hey there, and welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner. I'm a serial entrepreneur, investor, and business coach for ambitious women who are boldly taking their business to the next level. And I believe that building a successful business isn't about working 24-7 just to merely meet a revenue goal. What it does take is a unique blend of dedication to purpose, courageous action, and frequently sheer will to overcome the odds that lead to meaningful impact and experiencing a life well lived. In each episode, you'll get to know the women and men who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of success and failure that have made them incredible leaders and the magic they gift the world with. As you're listening, and I hope finding value, don't forget to share the Tribe of Leaders podcast with all of your other entrepreneurial friends and to follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hi, ladies. I hope that you have had a wonderful holiday season. I know it's not quite over yet, but that you have found joy, peace, fun, time with family and friends. And if the holiday season isn't your thing or this is a difficult one for you, please know that I am sending you love and looking forward to just a fabulous new year and kicking off everything in 2023 which as a reminder, this is our last episode as the Tribe of Leaders podcast. Next week, you will be hearing another amazing guest, but under our brand new name and brand new theme of women who build empires. And as I've been sharing with you, but just in case you haven't listened to the last couple of episodes, I want to be able to focus on really diving into cool conversations with women who are doing business differently because that's how women do business. And whether it's giving you an idea of how you can implement something in your business a little bit differently that might be more effective, whether it's giving yourself permission to have self-care and everybody around you being able to have more self-care or just changing an entire industry Those are the conversations that we're going to be playing with, and I hope that you are as excited as I am. Also, I want to remind you that this is the last week that you can get the Your Amazing Year Planner. It is available until January 31st. I actually have some really cool promos going on, so if you're listening to this before January 31st, check out my Instagram feed at the Emmy Kirshner so you can see what type of cool gifts you might be able to get because the holidays aren't over yet. And without further ado, I want to share with you my conversation with Javel Mamano. Javel is an entrepreneur and owner of an all-woman law firm in California. She is the recipient of the Super Lawyer Rising Star Award and ranks in the top of over 65,000 attorneys. I love Javel. I've known Javel for about a year. We worked together the early part of 2022. She says what's on her mind. And in our conversation, we talk about how she experienced imposter syndrome, her relationship with money and how she's had to heal that in order to build her business. Why pausing? And sitting in silence has helped her create more success than 
that work hard, hustle and grind mentality. We talk about her business. We talk about just so many different things. I'll let you listen to the interview instead of me listing them all. But I love her sincerity. I love how authentic Javel is. And she is such an inspiration as she's changing the face of the way law is done. Javel, welcome to the Tribe of Leaders. I have been waiting for like months to be able to have you on the show. And we finally got a date. So welcome. Share with everybody who you are. And I think we're going to have, I know, not even think, I know we're going to have like the most fun conversation today. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me. Who am I? I am a woman, a Filipina woman who lives in Northern California, specifically the Bay Area. I am an entrepreneur, a small business owner of an all-woman law firm. Our law firm keeps people out of jail. One of our unique selling propositions, aside from our 98% success rate, is that we like to take a holistic approach to criminal defense. And what I mean by that is just really looking at why a person might have gotten into trouble in the first place to try to identify what we can do so that they don't have to hire us again. I think one of the biggest achievements that I've had in life is just the number of people that I've helped through our practice not feel shame for what they were accused of, whether they were there was any factual basis to it or not. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm also the mommy of two small dogs, a Boston Terrier and a Chihuahua who's trying to get my attention right now. And the wife of a wonderful, wonderful man who reminds me to stay humble in all things. Which sounds like you have a really full life. <laughs> I do. I have a full life and it's very meaningful. That's awesome. I, was, I want to know what gives you not the most joy, but like, where does the meaning lie for you? First of all, I love that question because it's it's filled with so much because what is joy and you know who's the person answering it and joy in which part of your life? I think the short answer of what brings me joy is self-awareness. Earlier when you asked me who am I, I gave a snippet, but I didn't really give much information about you know my background and where I come from. I come from Los Angeles. Well, I was born in the Philippines and raised in Los Angeles. And the reason I say this is because I grew up with not much structure and stability in a lower middle class home where my parents were kids who had kids. And so the reason I say that is a lot of trauma and healing came from how I was raised and a lot of the demons that were in my life in the past really were myself and how I thought of myself, how I approached life, how hard I was on myself more than anything. And so I've created this life for myself that's full of joy because one of my favorite quotes is no matter where you go, there you are. And it's like, no matter where I go, I can be in hell or in heaven or broke or rich, but I just like the person that I am today. And it took a lot of therapy, a lot of expensive retreats and time and money and hard conversations to ultimately say, I like who I am. I love who I am. And that I think brings me the most joy because it allows me to be present in this world and be genuine and authentic in how I approach everything in life. And I think that's partially what brought success to my business and to my husband that, I mean, to finding my relationship with my husband, that vulnerability, that curiosity of who am I and what am I bringing to the table? Because imposter syndrome is is real and hard. And no matter how much money you make and what accolades you have and you know whatever you have to add to your CV or resume, if you don't really believe it and if you don't really like yourself, then what's the point? Right, right. For me, if you're not doing things that are filling you up, why do them? Like it doesn't matter what if exactly what you said. 
it doesn't matter how much money you're making. It doesn't matter whether you've got 20 cars parked in the garage or you have a huge house or multiple houses or whatever. If you're unfulfilled, there's no point. And I was laughing too, because I literally just posted on social a couple of days ago, exactly what you said, you know, wherever you go, there you are, because there's no escaping yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I took a break off of social media because I've learned that comparison is one of the biggest thieves of joy. And when I'm on social media, I can't help but compare myself to other people and what they're doing and why I'm not doing it too. And it could be as simple as somebody eating a hot bowl of ramen to, you know, traveling, you know, the Amalfi Coast, like just constant comparison. So I took a social media break, but I'm back. And the reason that I bring that up is because I come from LA where there's a lot about image and how we look. And I think in my early 20s, status and image and, you know, all the fancy things were important. And now that I'm in my 40s, (laughs) I don't really care anymore. Like I just about all those fancy things, you know, how we spend our time and how we spend our money says a lot about ourselves. And I really love spending my time and money helping people. And that feels better than a fancy purse. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to eat well because my bank account clearly shows that <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and I like to travel and I'm a huge spa junkie and a business coach junkie and you know always trying to figure out ways to make money while I sleep but all those fancy things don't matter to me it could matter to other people but for me in this point in my life it doesn't <laughs> which I love as I said my dogs used to want to stand on my head and be part of the whole zoom recording experience so we're just gonna go with it because uh-huh. there's only so many things we can control in life I am curious so like, what was it like growing up with the family and the experiences that you had and then like starting your own business? What were some of the things that you had to overcome? Yeah. Well, growing up, there was a lot of work hard mentality. So the strong work ethic was definitely put upon me early in life. Like I saw my parents get up early and work late. So growing up, I probably went to... 15 schools before I actually went to college. I had probably about 40 different part-time jobs before I went to college. And so there was a lack of stability, a lack of structure. And I was really just running the streets. And I look back at that time and those are the things that I used to be ashamed of because I used to be jealous of the kids who had fridges full of food and individual sized drinks and, you know, parents that were home and that they had relationships with. But I've learned that that grit that caused me to learn how to survive was actually really helpful for me as an entrepreneur, because I think it was Dolly Parton who said, I've grown up with nothing. So if I fail, what's the worst that can happen? I have nothing. I've survived from there. So, um, I think that growing up in in a home with a lack of stability, a lack of structure, having to constantly move because we were always getting evicted because bills weren't getting paid. A lot of those things were hard because I didn't have a good relationship with my with money and financial literacy. I actually think back at the old me and how embarrassed I was for people to think that I didn't have any money. And so I would overcompensate by paying for everything all the time so that people wouldn't know. And now I think about where I'm at and how and just how far I've come with the life that I've created. And I'm grateful for just the things that my parents instilled with me, the strong work ethic, the values coming from a Filipino household community, you know, all of that. But I also like to think differently from how my parents were raised. I think my my parents believe that if you were white, especially if you were white and wore a suit, that you were superior over us. And that comes from a lot of colonization from the Philippines. But I'm fortunate that my parents took me here to America because 
I then was able to get an education and surround myself with people who helped me think differently other than, you know, working hard and that being my main contributing thing to society and to my family. I realized that working hard is really not as great as working smart. And whoever said that money can't buy you happiness, I don't think really had a lot of money or (laughs) really didn't know what (laughs) happiness was. I really didn't even know what happiness was. Because if you think about it, you can be young and rich and not know yourself. And then, you know, money can't buy you happiness. Or you can have all these problems and easily say money doesn't buy you happiness or people with money are bad, you know, which is what I grew up learning that white people with money, they're different, we're different, we're bad. And now I think, you know what, money can pay for my house cleaner to come and clean things for my masseuse to come to my home and give me a massage for all the things that help me show up and be a better wife, show up and be a better friend, a better business owner. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I've seen a number of people, again, post on social, like who said money can't buy happiness because it buys you options and choices. Mm -hmm. And with those, if you're being intentional, then there is some joy to that. There is the ability to create a life that has more ease, which then again can bring happiness. But it also comes from that place too of what we said earlier, if you're not fulfilled, None of those things. Right. And I think a lot about fear because I remember when I graduated college and wanted to go to law school, it scared my family and my parents because they thought, one, it's expensive. And two, why don't you just go work at the carpet store like your cousin who is an assistant general manager and makes $15 an hour because it was safe, consistent, steady income. But then I also think about when I graduated law school and nobody wanted to hire me because I wasn't the most you know, attractive candidate or nor at the top of my class or went to a fancy school. And starting a business was even more scary for my family because they thought, what if you fail? And I think about fear a lot and how it drives people to you know, navigate the world the way that they do. And so I think one of the biggest things that I've learned in the past 12 months is just the practice of noticing things, noticing patterns, noticing belief systems and roadblocks and how I operate and think in this world and pausing more, which came with more emotional maturity to say, I come from two schools of life. One is how I was raised, which is hustle hard, work hard, you know, good things come to those who get it. And then the more, I guess, spiritually aware and self-aware part of me who says, just pause and be still and things are the way that they're supposed to be. And there's something bigger behind all these things that are happening that you're just reacting to. Pause, stop and ask yourself, how am I not going to react to this, but respond to this so that it actually does the most for me in alignment with my values. That's beautiful. Really, really beautiful. And I agree because I also came from a very different background, but it was always work really hard beyond like what normal humans do and a level of excellence that's beyond even perfectionism and learning to one kind of bring that back into normal human range and to find that kind of flow of when do you push? Because if you don't push a little bit, then you're not pushing your limits, but also find that place to sit in quiet and give yourself rest and give yourself permission to be imperfect And I've been in inquiry a lot about that, particularly in the last couple of months and what feels good and what's going to really help me the most. So I'm curious as well, you know, how does that work for you? Which part exactly? Finding that balance and that flow. Got it. Okay. Well, a few things. Well, let me give the short answer and then the background to it. 
Finding my balance and flow, the way that I do it is through consistency, especially with my habits and what I do every day. Because I grew up with such an unstable lifestyle and a lot of chaos, structure is important to me. So I ensure that every morning I do my 10, 10, 10, 10 minutes of meditating, 10 minutes of journaling, 10 minutes of reading, because that moves the needle forward tremendously when you add it up throughout the year, through the months. And then I make sure to move my body and take care of myself so I don't pour from an empty cup. That's the short answer. But regarding finding balance and flow, I'm reminded that recently I went to a Samoan funeral, a celebration of life. And it was one of the most life-changing experiences that I felt this year because it's not like American celebrations of life for funerals where one or two people get up and do a eulogy. In a Samoan celebration of life, everybody gives testimony of how that person affected their life and then sings a song. And it was so meaningful. And it reminded me that when we die, who cares? How did you treat people? How did people feel when they were around Mm -hmm. you? You know, how big was your community? And when I saw the Samoan community come together to celebrate someone's life, I was reminded that a lot of the things that helped me with my business came at a cost of losing a lot of the relationships that I had and not tendering them or caring for them. And so now I'm in a place where I want to do that. The second thing is that in order for me to do that, I have to have the luxury of not living check to check and not knowing, not worrying because I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how I went to, I don't know, a business coach or entrepreneur events, I don't know, and Two rich, young, tech bro white dudes got up and were saying, Burning Man is the best thing ever. We're going to get everybody in our you know, new startup company to go to Burning Man because everybody needs to experience it. And I looked around at the room and I thought, everybody here is white, male, and you know, has money. So I raised my hand and I said, well, what about the people who can't afford to go to Burning Man or even take time off because they're trying to figure out how to keep the lights on? And I didn't like the answer because it was kind of jumping around the question. And so it made me think to find balance, to find flow, you first have to have the bare minimum roof over your head, money in the account. You know, a lot of people don't come from a place where they have three months saved up where they can actually stop, pause, think, and make those decisions that's going to bring balance and flow. People are sometimes living in such survival mode that they don't have that luxury. So My balance and my flow comes from the foundations that I've created for myself to have financial security and the freedom to do that. But I'm sure other people find balance and flow, like, you know, single moms with five kids, they probably just need to pause and breathe for a second or close the door and have some alone time. (laughs) Yes. I think before we talk about balance and flow, let's also recognize the people that don't have that luxury to even stop and think about that. And that's where I think breathing and just pausing and just stopping and having compassion for ourselves and being kind to ourselves is just, you know, more important than a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. When my kids stopped wanting to like go to the bathroom with me, it was the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I asked would like scratch on the door. I asked a girlfriend because we're trying to have a family, my husband and I, I asked my girlfriend, what's it like to be a mom? And she said, you're just never 100% fully rested. And a friend of mine who's starting her own business asked me, I feel like I'm in the weeds. You know, what should I do? And I said, honey, as an entrepreneur, especially in the beginning, there's never going to be a shortage of work. And if there is, that's a bad indicator that, you know, maybe what you're offering isn't something that the market wants. But in the beginning, It's kind of like motherhood, you know, like there's never not to say that you're never going to be fully rested because with a baby, it's 24 seven, whereas with your business, you can step away as needed. But it's like there's never going to be a shortage of work and things to do. It's how you approach it and what you spend your time on. 
so that you're strategically executing to bring in revenue and putting the right people in the right seats. Yeah, absolutely. So why start your own business? Like why not why not stay in a law firm or be in a law firm? You know, I first started my business out of necessity and nobody wanted to hire me and I had to pay bills. So I just decided to start my own shop. And pretty much most of my clients were other attorneys who had an abundance of work and overflow. So they just gave me their extra work and I put it under, you know, my own solo practice. But I think kind of similar to going to a spa. It's like my mother has never been to a spa until like 15 years ago. And when I brought her to a spa, she was hooked. And she thought, oh my God, why don't I get a massage regularly or a facial regularly? I feel like that's the thing with entrepreneurship if you do it right. And if you stop and reflect, like once you are able to not have to answer to anybody or have a boss, I can't imagine going back to that life again. Even during COVID, I had to stop and ask myself because it was very humbling for our business, which had to take a pause for two years. Would I go back to work for somebody else? And the dread, I was like, oh no, I love being an entrepreneur. I love working on my own. I love the challenge, you know? It's not for everybody, but I did it out of necessity and I'll never go back just like the spa. Like I'll never go back to not going to the spa. (laughs) (laughs) And you're woman-owned, woman-run. Like, Why is that so important to you? Because you practice law very differently than a lot of attorneys. Well, I think when the smoke clears, women just do things differently. My husband and I had this conversation. He's like, you know, men and women are not equal. Men are just physically stronger than women. And I had to give it to him. I was like, damn it, he's right for the most part. You know, not there's exceptions, you know, but generally, yeah, men are built differently from women in that they have more strength and lose weight quicker, which is annoying. But women, we just have tend to have more emotional intelligence and like to look at the totality of all the circumstances and how things are run. And when I think of law school, they don't teach you bedside manners. You know, I think about a friend who saw a doctor and, you know, he gave her all the same, he gave her accurate information, but he just didn't seem like he cared. And so the difference with our law firm is that people feel seen and heard and cared for. And yeah, I think that's why I decided to work with all women because it just works better that way. I mean, we also have a lot of contractors that are male, but for me, that was one of the main reasons. Yeah. And talk about a little bit about your success ratio, because you I mean you have like a 95% success, like case success ratio, which is, I think, highly unusual, which means that you're doing something very differently. Mm-hmm. Right. So the procedures and the technicalities that come behind, you know, caring for people and having the luxury to do that, we offer a 150 point inspection of every single case, which means no stone let gets left unturned. And, you know, the way that we, the way that we approach every case is very systematic and has been proven to reap the best results, at least when it comes to people's liberty. And the night, it's actually a 98% success rate. We've served over a thousand clients. And what the success rate means is that when people come to us, I kind of like to think of ourselves as first responders. You know, people are calling us when they or their loved ones have been arrested for a crime and their liberty is at stake. And so they're calling us in this emotional state and we're there to respond with logic and reason rather than fear and emotion to tell them this is what to expect in your case. As of right now, like when you go to a hospital and you have you don't know the answers because you have to do blood work, we have to look at a police report to find out 
where there's actually evidence to support, you know, the accusations being made against you. And at the end of the day, we were able to keep 98% of our clients out of jail and not suffer any jail time after they've hired us. And, you know, I feel a little bad saying that because a lot of the people who get arrested and find themselves in the trouble with the law can't afford counsel. So the people who have hired us were able to afford those services. And it's unfortunate that you know, money buys freedom here in America. And, you know, I can go on and on about the, you know, mass incarceration and, you know, the United States being, you know, a profitable, you know, country for mass incarceration and the prison industrial contract complex, but system. But I mean, I'm just glad that we're able to help people who find themselves in a bad situation and worry that they're not going to be able to live their lives outside of bars. Yeah. Let's talk about that briefly, because I think there's a lot of people who may be potentially listening that don't understand or don't know the profit center that our jail system is. The summary is that the United States is what less than 5% of the world's population, but houses over 80% of the world's prisoners. It's rough. My numbers, you know, maybe inaccurate slightly, but for the most part, it's about 40 to $45,000 a year to house one person in prison. And other places take a different, more restorative justice, holistic approach to criminal, you know, activity. If somebody like in, if somebody does something wrong in some countries, there'll be conversations about who was harmed and what you can do to make the person whole again, not just taking somebody and throwing away the key and letting them, you know, go to prison. But a lot of the people who are in prison are people of color. And a lot of the people of color also come from low-income households. And so there's a lot of people who are in prison, whose fathers were in prisons, whose grandfathers were in prisons, whose, you know, I met a guy who was born in a prison because his mother was pregnant with him at the time. So, you know, the for-profit United States when it comes to when it comes to the prison industrial complex system is that, you know, on one hand, America is like the place where immigrants can come and really make a life for themselves and, you know, make money and entrepreneurship is strong here. But we're also sometimes too focused on money, especially when it comes to how we treat people who have been swept under the rug and don't have the means to hire an attorney. Because there's a lot of people who are inside, not because of it being the right or moral thing to do, but because a lot of people make a lot of money when people get incarcerated. The people that build the jails, the correctional officers, you know, just all the people involved in building jails. We have more jails than any other country, more well, prisons. And, and isn't our reincar- reincarceration rate much higher than other countries. Right. And so, you know, there's something called the CDCR, which is the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations. And it's a joke within the social justice world, because we don't really do a lot of rehabilitation or corrections when people are inside. So the recidivism rate, the percentage where people get out and come back into prison is based on people. Imagine this, you're 18, you go to prison, you're sentenced to 10 years for a violent crime, which could be considered, you know, stealing, joyriding a vehicle or something like that. And you get out and you're given $300. And that's all you have. You have no family outside or you don't have family with means. What are you going to do with 300 bucks? You're going to take a Greyhound bus back to the city, barely have enough money to pay for a hotel room. Of course, people are going to make money the way that they can which is whether illegally selling drugs or selling their body or, you know, being part of a racket. I mean, people got to do what they got to do to survive. And so there's really not much rehabilitation and corrections to help people help themselves. Yeah. And I don't want to spend a ton of time, but on this, so if somebody wanted to find out more information and educate themselves, is there some place that you can recommend that they go and look up or? Yeah. 
there's a couple of organizations, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship. There's something that's called Defy Ventures, D-E-F-Y. They're a national organization that help people inside with tools to start their own small businesses when they get out. There's also an organization called Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. They do a lot of lobbying work to help change the laws. Those are two off the top of my head. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. So much. Yeah. Going back into your business, where do you see it expanding in the next couple of years? Well, we're boutique right now, but as far as expansion is concerned, I've found that the model for us post-COVID is not necessarily hiring employees, but more contractors. Because I think that post-COVID, a lot of people are starting to get used to the freedom of working from home, working when they want, not working you know, full-time. I mean, imagine pre-COVID, people were driving for 30 minutes to work and then sitting there for eight hours and driving 30 minutes back you know, and not even spending much time at home. So for us, contractors are really working for us at this time. My goal as far as scaling the business is to make the same amount of money that I'm making now working part-time and just letting the business run itself so that I can you know, focus on having a family. Which is, I think, beautiful and amazing. For somebody who's, who's just starting out or is maybe a year or two into business, what advice would you give them? You're an average of the five people you surround, you surround yourself with. And when I first started my business, there were a lot of naysayers because a lot of the people that I, were hanging, I was hanging out with were W-2 employees. And so it was, you know, it was different for me to leave those circles and start spending time with mentors and business coaches and other entrepreneurs so that I can think differently about my time and my money. Like I said before, I used to think that it was something to be proud of that I was at my desk for more than eight hours. Now... I'm proud of myself when I'm at my desk for two hours and did the same amount of work or, you know, delegate everything. So I think that when you're first starting a business, it's going to be hard, but you have to surround yourself with people who are doing the things that you want to do. Nobody who, people who are doing better than you are going to show you how to get there. And I also believe in natural networking. And what I mean by that is when I was first starting as a female minority in a predominantly white, older male dominated field. You know, most of my competitors are older white men who look very stern and serious in their pictures with, you know, background books, you know, behind them and all these accolades. When I first started, I noticed there weren't a lot of women minorities. And so a lot of the people that I reached out to for mentorship weren't in alignment with my values as far as making sure that people seen, heard, felt seen and heard and the more compassionate approach. So I started to actually Google most successful women in San Francisco. And I just went down the list and I called all those women. And a lot of them didn't give me their time, but one of them did. And she ended up being a partner of mine for many things and somebody who was at my wedding. So just be mindful of who you spend your time with and make sure that when you do spend time with professional mentors, that they're also in alignment with your personal values, because there's a lot of people out there that are cutthroat and will do whatever they need to do to make a dollar. And if you're not about that, then don't surround yourself with that person and surround yourself with people who are in alignment with your values. I think that is the most brilliant networking tip I have ever heard, (laughs) right? Like you just creatively solved the problem. Yeah. You know, I think it takes years to build a good reputation and minutes to ruin it. And I remember early on in my career, I was taught to, I don't want to say lie, but withhold information because that's part of lawyering and what negotiations are about. And I thought, no, screw that. No, (laughs) I'm a person before I'm a professional. And that's not, you know, if I'm going to do one bad thing, how you do anything is an indicator of how you do many things. And I remember my voice trembling and my body shaking when I told this older 
man who's been practicing twice as long as I've been, or, you know, twice as long as I've been alive. He was like in his seventies at the time. I just remember shaking and going, no, I won't say that. I won't do that. No. And he's like, you better get it together, kid. This is how things work. And I'm like, well, just because this is how things work doesn't mean that's how it has to continue to be. Wow. That's like mic drop right there. (laughs) But it's a testament of your strength and your solidity in who you are that you're not willing to allow somebody else that's formidable in some respects tell you what to do. You know, I think about the conversations that I wish I had with my parents early on, the conversations that I don't have with my mother or my father, because now that I'm looking at it with a more compassionate approach, I realize that they were doing the best that they could. But as I'm trying to have a family, I thought about, you know, one of the most hardest and important jobs in life is to raise a well-rounded human being. And I think about how our kids won't grow up with some of the suffering that I did growing up and how, but how do I teach them grit? And then I realized that a lot of it is really dialogue and having conversations and the Filipino upbringing, my dad's job was to put a roof over our head. That was it. My mom's job was to make sure that we were God fearing and to put food in our mouths, but they weren't my friends. And I think about when I have kids and I'm not going to say, you know, we'll have boundaries. I'm not going to be their best friends, but we have to have conversations and I need to say, I'm sorry when I'm wrong. So they learn to do that too, to apologize immediately without excuses and with authenticity so that they learn to do that as well. I mean, kids and employees, not that they're the same, but like people watch how you act and how you navigate, not what you say. And so for me, a big part of, um, my success as far as having the lifestyle that is meaningful and important to me has to do with just self-awareness. And now that I'm thinking about having a family, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how I'm going to raise a well-rounded human being with grit, with tenacity, with humility and compassion. And it's going to be probably one of the hardest jobs of my life. It will be. Being on the other end or the other side of it, it will be. (laughs) And having had very open conversations with my kids, the best thing I ever did was set them up to fail. Yeah. And also to know that failure is cool because I got yelled at for everything, you know, and it got to a point where I was too scared to do anything. And so, yeah, I saw a TikTok of a a child skateboarding and every time she fell, her father helped her get back up. And Mm -hmm. I thought I want to be that person. Yeah, absolutely. Failure is cool. Failure is the best thing. It doesn't feel very good while it's happening, but it's really the best thing. You've you know, mentioned- one of I, go ahead. So I just want to say that as an entrepreneur, especially when you're first starting, how you speak to yourself is really important. I had a business coach who, whenever I'd feel down, she'd say, "Go look at all your Yelp reviews. You have 100% five star reviews." And I would read the things that people said about our services, and I had to remind myself that I am my own best friend and my own worst enemy. And I've gotten to the point where that mean voice is still there every day. Now I just recognize it and look at it and laugh and say from time to time, you'll, you know, you'll still be there. But yeah, a lot of it is mindset when you're first starting. Absolutely. You've mentioned mentors and business coaches a number of times. You and I have worked together earlier this year. What has been some of the best things that you've gotten out of working with coaches and mentors in general? Oh, man. Well, let me just start off with you. You reminded me of what my value was and what I have to offer. In the criminal defense lawyer world in my geographic area, nobody charges a consultation fee. I was scared to do it because I thought, who am I to charge a consultation fee when none of my colleagues that have been doing this way longer than I have do? 
And you helped me identify why we should charge a consultation fee, what those consultation fees are. And what it did, did it is it saved me so much time from speaking with people who weren't serious about hiring us for our services. But it also reminded me what our value and what our worth is. And that helped me as the leader be a better example for our support staff, for them to know, you know what their value and their worth is. Right, right. So I think that that was one of the biggest things that I've learned from you outside of also how to spend my time and where to focus my energy on. So the return on investment for that was well, I mean, beyond worth it. With other business coaches, I like to think of myself for lack of better words as a business coach junkie. When I first started, I told you that I researched most successful women in San Francisco. And I met a woman who introduced me to my first business coach. And she asked me, what do you want to do? And I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I just knew I needed to make money. So she helped me identify what I wanted in you know specific, measurable, time-based, relevant goals. And when I worked towards that, I realized I didn't even want it. And then it brought me closer to what I actually wanted. So I've used different business coaches and different mentors to help me get to where I want. And it ultimately led me to realize that I was like a sponge and very impressionable. And if somebody told me X, I would do X. And I tried so many different things. And it got to a point where I thought, oh, wow, I'm being quoted on Forbes. I'm writing INC articles written, you know, that are posted on INC. And people are looking to me as this, you know, quasi expert on, you know, business. I must have something valuable worth saying. And I realized, oh my God, it's kind of like going to the gym, you know, every week for like three years and going, whoa, whoa, I'm actually quite fit. I think that's what happened with business coaching. It became such a regular part of my life and surrounding myself with mentors that it got to a point where I thought, yeah, I can in my sleep, wake up and give you advice on how to handle things strategically, you know, execute or, you know, bring in cash. So it feels good. Awesome. I think it's really important, not just in entrepreneurship, in life in general, to have people outside of your circle mm-hmm. sharing information and strategy with you so that you can be more intentional, whether it's business or life or sports or anything. Yeah. You know, I think about growing up with my parents and how if somebody had a different opinion on them, they were the enemy. And now I really welcome people with a different opinion. And yeah, I welcome it because maybe I could be wrong and I could be doing things differently. It's the humility and the putting the ego aside has been huge in helping me with my business, really stopping and pausing and listening more with the tools of the experience. I love it when people give experience shares versus advice because you know you can Google advice now, but when somebody shares their firsthand personal experience of how they dealt with the struggle of entrepreneurship, like it's wonderful, you know, especially when it comes to your books and numbers and finances. And you know, I remember the first few years I had got hit with a huge tax bill and I was like, oh no, I didn't put money aside for this. But now, you know, every quarter there's estimated, you know, quarterly tax payments that are made. And it feels good to run a business by the numbers based on experience from other people's mistakes that I've learned from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can shortcut a lot of things by listening and understanding those experiences too. Yeah. And you know, one of the big things that I would tell a new entrepreneur is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. When I first started, I did a lot of things on my own because I was too proud to ask for help. Now we're starting mono law school where we're basically help the way that lawyering in California works now is you don't have to go to a law school and have half a million dollars in debt to sit for the bar. The Kim Kardashian way, which is what she did, is you can now do an apprenticeship or a mentorship with a law firm the same amount of time that you would go to law school and also have the honor and opportunity to sit and take one of the hardest exams in the United States, which is the state bar exam. So with Lamano Law School, 
we are not going to reinvent the wheel and, you know, contact other people who have done these apprenticeships so that we can have the same curriculum and, you know, start mentoring and producing strong lawyers who are doing big things. That is amazing because it, it for me, it's really time to change the way law firms and lawyers are practicing law. It has one of the highest burnout rates. Mm-hmm. And alcoholism and suicide. And I, you know, I think that all just has to go with the, you know, hustle, hard, work hard mentality, minimum billable hours. You know, I'm hoping that this country will take a shift in how we approach work life balance post COVID because when you travel and you see how other people outside of this country live their lives, it's more meaningful as far as not identifying as somebody who is just somebody who's producing, you know, the art of doing nothing is strong. The art of doing nothing is amazing. (laughs) Javel, I am so excited that you made time to be on the show today. Would you share with everybody how they can get in contact with you? Yeah, you can go on our website, lamanolaw.com. And my contact information is there. That's L-A-M-A-N-O-L-A-W.com. And we are all over social media if you just look up Lamano Law. Yeah, and we'll get those links in the show notes too. So you can just click on through. Javel, thank you again. Thank you, Emmy. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders. 